scripture before the sermon will be uh, Revelations chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there, be, will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So as we uh, worshiped with uh, that side of the family last week, the preacher that I was listening to, he, he quoted Reinhold Niebuhr on the difference between, a, between hope and optimism. I was really intrigued with that. It got me thinking about him this week. Reinhold Niebuhr was a really fascinating figure. He was uh, uh, really one of the more influential theologians of the 20th century, but yielded his influence far beyond just kind of Christian circles and theological circles. He's been quoted by at least three different presidents in the last 30 years. Um, but he was also a notorious pessimist. He was an American theologian, uh, doing a lot of his works in the 40s and 50s, but he was very pessimistic about government, about American government, about politics, about a lot of things. And, and, and somebody asked him one time, what, why is it, how do you reconcile this pessimism that's such a mark of your writing with, this, uh, with being a Christian, being a Christian theologian? And he talked about the difference between the hope, hope and optimism as his answer. An optimist, for him, is one who surveys human potential and is excited about what we can do. <laughs> the optimist looks at all the capacities within and the capacities within a culture, the capacities of, of what we can accomplish if we put our minds to it and what we can do. And he says, you know, the optimist says we can fix this. And, it, and he, in that sense, he is, was certainly not an optimist. He was kind of rejecting Really what happened theologically in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was in theological circles and in, in kind of academic circles, there was a lot of optimism about the ability of, of human potential to solve its problems. We entered the 1900s with the expectation that we simply had grown past the need for war. The 1900s was the bloodiest century in the history of mankind. We were wrong about that. Uh, but there was a lot of optimism. That optimism proved to be um, futile. And Niebuhr saw that. And the optimist may look at human potential, but for him, theologically, he said the, the, person, the, the person who's hopeful is looking not at human potential, but at divine potential. And the person who is full of hope sees in a situation that, humanly speaking, may be impossible. Maybe something they simply can't overcome. It may be beyond human capacity, but they understand that if God is at work and God has determined to accomplish something, that nothing can hold him back. And so Niebuhr would see, say, yeah, I'm a pessimist because I see what human potential can really bring about. But he was full of hope because he believed that God was at work in the world and in the church. I think that search for hope that we've been talking about this morning, I think it runs through this season in such a vital way. Uh, can we find hope today? Can we find hope in this season? 
But as we really wind up, not just our study in Revelation, but we begin to wind down, our, uh, really to look at the last words of the Bible itself, I think it's fascinating to think about where does the Bible land? Uh, if you don't have your Bibles open to Revelation 22, I encourage you to open them there. We'll, we'll be here for the next two weeks finishing out this. But this is the Bible's last word. And really, most versions, you know, there's a lot of debates about the dating of different texts. And, and I've argued that Revelation is, I think, the, I've argued for what, what the earlier dating. I think the Revelation is written in the late 60s in A.D. But even on that view, uh, Revelation is the last book of the canon. It's the last word written in the Bible. Where does the Bible end? Uh, it ends with a stunning picture of hope, but it is a hope not just for the future, but it's for the present. Now, I want you to see, I think that's really the trick in understanding these five verses here in Revelation 22, is to see that it is ultimately speaking not just to something in the far off land beyond, but to something right now. But where it begins, if you open in verse 1, it, it takes us to a garden city. And I think there's really five things I want you to see about these five verses, but the first thing is really kind of just an orientation. And if you see the images, if you just kind of scan those five verses, you see this thing about this river, you see about this, this tree that's bearing fruit, um, you're, you quickly realize you're no longer in a city. Uh, per se. I mean, in chapters 20 and 21, we, we've really 21, we've seen the new heaven and the new earth. In the back half of 21, starting in verse 9, we saw this picture of a new Jerusalem. The, if we ended at, at 21, then we've got an interesting move in Scripture, because Scripture begins in Genesis 2, after the, the universe is created by God, He establishes a garden, and He puts uh, humanity in that garden, uh, and so we go from garden, but then at the end of ch chapter 21, we wind up in a city. So there would be an interesting move from the garden to the city, but that's not where we wind up. In chapter 22, we're circling back to Genesis 2 because we're back in something of a garden, but it's a garden that's not quite a garden. In fact, what I would suggest to you is what we see in these five verses, that the new Jerusalem here is a garden city, and it's a kind of glorified Eden. And I think that's important to see. You may have different mindsets yourself. You know, we've got people who kind of consider themselves city folk, people who consider themselves maybe more country folk, and they say, like, I really, this is my sense of the ideal. You know, there are folks that just love the bustling city life and say, that's really, I, I really want to see just, uh, you know, the, the world of the city. I love living in, in the midst of all the craziness, in the midst of all that activity. And there's folks that, you know, we're kind of done with it. My, my grandfather went off to war, World War II, when he came back, he, had, he was done with really most gatherings of people. Like, he just bought himself a plot of land, and he wanted to kind of work that land. And that's mostly what he did for the rest of his life. He was happy to live in the country. Um, but this is not a tension. This is not a choice. The Bible doesn't tell us which one is the better thing, because it actually converges them. The, the, the promise of Genesis chapter 2 in the Garden of Eden, is fulfilled here with something that is actually much better. It is a city teeming with life, with all of the lush beauty and abundance of the Garden of Eden present throughout. It's a garden city. Um, where do you see that? Well, you see that in the first verse. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. 
In Eden, there were these four rivers that would flow from Eden to water. There's this water source. That essentially, the four rivers, it's a picture in Genesis of, it, of watering the, the earth. Eden was meant to be this abundance that overflows for all of creation. Here, there is a single river. Um, and actually, it echoes not only Eden, but also Ezekiel chapter 47. And Ezekiel, there, there's a sense of this kind of new temple that, uh, that Ezekiel sees. And in this new temple, there is a water source that in a sense is tempt, tipped over. And he sees this water flowing out of the temple. Uh, it takes us back to Revelation chapter 8, where you see the old temple was poisoned. The water was poisoned by wormwood. It had turned the water bitter. But here... There is this fresh water that flows from the throne, this single river of life that is flowing out. And it's the throne of, notice, of God and of the Lamb. There's this shared sense of authority of God the Father and God the Son united. And it's actually the work of the Lamb that has purified this sacrifice. And now this city accomplishes what, essentially what Jerusalem was meant to be. Again, back to Revelation chapter 8, Jerusalem was meant to be a city, the people of God that were to bless the nations, and instead, because of their corruption, Jerusalem had been, become poisoned. And what was flowing out of the, of the religious life of Jerusalem was this poisoned water that was corrupting and killing anyone that would drink of it. Here, there is this pure water of life that's flowing. In verse 2, it flows out through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, there's this tree of life. So this throne is producing this river of life that is for everyone. And now here, there is also this tree, this third thing, this tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Now, I think that's an image that um, we probably don't appreciate as much in our day because we get fruit all sorts of seasons. You know, you kind of show up in the grocery store and we pick up whatever fruit, and maybe if we're kind of attuned to the fact, we realize that, you know, the fruit we're getting maybe not quite as fresh, or not quite as sweet as it might be in other seasons because it's traveled a long way and maybe coming from a different source. But we're kind of used to fruit throughout the season. Do you think about agrarian culture? I mean, they're used to fruit in its season. And so there's a lot of times where you just don't get the fruit. But here there's this constant abundance of life. It's always budding its fruit. There's 12 kinds of fruit. Again, we hear 12. You think about the 12 tribes. You think about the 12 apostles. There's a sense of the whole purpose of the people of God yielding this fruit, this abundance that's, that's flowing out. But notice it's also coming from this tree of life. Now, that's, it's an interesting image because you notice it's the, verse 2, it's the tree that's on either side of the river. There is a single tree of life. Now, some of your translations might actually translate it as trees, and they're trying to clean up something that I think the text is meant to make us scratch your head over. Um, because you have both sides of the river, you think you've got a whole grove of trees. And actually, I think that image I put on the screen is actually capturing that. There's not a lot that try to say, what does this look like to have a single tree of life that runs on both sides of the river? And honestly, I have no idea what that looks like. But I do know that single tree of life is there with a purpose. Remember back in Eden, the Garden of Eden, the tree of life really was a threat to Adam. When, uh, when Adam and Eve, when they had sinned, when they had rebelled, they had, had eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Having eaten from that, they were banished 
And the reason why they were banished was to keep them, in part, was to keep them separate from the tree of life. Because were they to eat of the tree of life, having been poisoned by the sin in their life, it would corrupt creation, corrupt them. You, you don't want to live forever in a sinful state. Uh, sin is a corrupting thing. Um, so there's this barrier, that, this angelic barrier, that keeps them separate from the tree of life. And now it's running right down the middle of the city. And it's producing fruit all the time. And everyone is welcome to come and drink from the water of life and take from that tree. It's an image of, of purification. Jesus Christ has healed that breach. He's healed that wound. And now, through Christ, there is a single tree of life that they can gather from. In Ezekiel, he talks about the trees of life. Here, there's a single one. And when we think of the tree, it should make us think of Christ and the cross. What he says, he is, he is food for all people. He is, we come to eat. He's producing fruit in all seasons. But interestingly... It's as he's producing that fruit, these leaves of this tree, verse 2, are for the healing of the nations. Now, I think at that moment, we're again, we have another hint. As I mentioned over the last few sermons, at the beginning of chapter 21, we are in a different time than we are at the end of chapter 21. I think what's happening in Revelation as it winds down is it takes us to the very end of the story. We see Revelation I guess we're over here at the end. Revelation 20, we have this thousand-year reign, and after this thousand-year reign, which I think is the age that we're living in right now, there's a glimpse of the defeat of Satan, this overthrow. Jerusalem comes and descends, and we have a picture of the new heaven and the new earth. We, we have a glimpse of the age to come. And then in verse 9, we really pull back and see a picture of what the church is right then, there when he's writing that in the late 60s, and really what, what it is right now. This is the picture of the new Jerusalem of the latter half of chapter 21 is a picture of the church as we're living now, as we're meant to be. I think that's still true here in Revelation 22. We're ending the story, not at the end, but right back in their present day. And where you get a glimpse of that there is that picture of the healing of the nations. If we're at the end, the nations no longer exist. Uh, The healing is done. It's all passed away because now there is one nation left. At the end, the kings that rebel have been overthrown. The kings have been destroyed. All there is left is the the one nation, the church, made from every nation and tribe and tongue on earth. But here, the nations are still being healed. The church, I think this is what's happening here in these five verses, this is a picture of what the church is meant to be for the world today. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. But it tells us that we're still in the present age. These nations still exist. They are being healed. And the tree of life is the means by which the nations are healed. Along with that, the fourth thing to notice is that the people that inhabit this city with the river of life flowing and the tree of life have this unhindered worship. Verse 3, no longer will there be anything accursed but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it and His servants will worship Him. Now, we, my, I think, translation is polite. It says the word servant. I think we should make ourselves uncomfortable and hear the other translation, which is slave. His slaves will worship Him. And where you hear that, I think, reinforces in the next verse, they will see His face and His name will be on their foreheads. 
Now, who was it that had names on their foreheads? Well, there are really two. I think it's important to connect the two in our minds. The two people that wore things on their foreheads, one were slaves, marked, stamped on the forehead. And that marks you, marked for life in a sense. So there's an image of these slaves, these servants. They, are, they, they belong to him, but they're marked on the forehead. But it's also the image of a priest. Aaron would wear this sash on his forehead and it would be marked. Uh, so the, they're, they are both slaves and priests, servants and priests. I think biblically those, those are connected over and over again. Because the people of God, the, the priests of God, belong to God. But they're also ultimately going to be leaders in worship. They're worshiping in this kind of unhindered fashion because the curse is gone. The curse has been washed away. Um, there's nothing that separates them. They can worship and they can see his face, verse 4. When they see his face, they are basking in the presence of God without barrier. Something even Moses was not allowed to do. Something has changed in the relationship of God and his people because of what the Lamb has done. He has changed their ability to relate to him, relate to him in this unhindered fashion. And then finally, the fifth image, verse 5, there is this eternal light that comes from God. It says, night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. That rhythm of day and night is something established in Genesis chapter 1. But here, that rhythm of day and night wash away because the people of God are basking in the eternal light that comes from God himself. And what it produces in them is their ability to reign. That's the last word here in verse 5, is that these slaves and priests are also ruling alongside him. Well, what I think, as I mentioned, I think this is a picture of, not of the end of all things, but the picture of the church right now. And that can be a little hard for us to get our mind around, because I think sometimes it doesn't feel that way. It doesn't feel like the church is all that we've just described here. But what is it saying about the church now? Well, one, let me suggest four different things. The idea is first that our, our life together in Christ is to be a river of life for all who will drink. Jesus Christ is the living water. That's what he said. He told the woman at the well exactly that. You can drink, I'll give you living water, and you'll never thirst again. And we can connect that with a lot of pieces of our life together as God's people. I think we think of water, of course, we think of baptism. And I think that's one of those things that you connect it to baptism. But you also then connect it to uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, that we are seeing in our baptism a picture of a person being remade or renewed. Uh, but that we're also gathering at the table week in and week out. That we are, in a sense, coming to the table to seek renewal. Worship is the central frame for our life. And we'll see more of this next week. In Revelation 22, one of the keys, what do we do as the people of God? We worship. To gather as God's people and worship is the central piece of our identity. It is the thing that makes us who we are. We gather as the people of God. We gather in worship. And in that, we set the frame from which everything else in our life must build around. And that's 
I think, a different picture than a lot of times we often picture worship. Worship is maybe the extra thing or the add-on. If there's, it's a matter of convenience. It's, it's the central frame here. Because what we're doing as we gather together, we are, in worshiping, we are worshiping Christ who is the single river of life for all who drink. There's no other source of life out there. That's all. That's what we've got. Uh, you can't reject that one and say, I'll just maybe walk a little farther and find another source. That is the source. It's all you have. Uh, our life together in Christ is to be a river of life for all who drink. Our life together is to be sustained by Christ. This is the picture of this tree that is always bearing fruit. The church will encounter seasons of abundance and seasons of scarcity. And I think for a lot of folks in the church right now, we're living through a season of scarcity. I was reading different things here this week about how COVID has impacted the global church and reading about different stories of, of the mission organizations and how their work has been impacted, the difficult decisions they had to make about expatriates, about whether they were to stay in the country where they're ministering or did they have to leave before they get locked down. If they stay, how does funding work? How does their ability to minister to the people work? How does this do, you know, how does this... Uh, the economic effects of the virus, along with the virus itself, impact the poorest of the poor. There's a ripple effect. It's a season of scarcity for a lot of folks. And yet, uh, whether we are in seasons of abundance or seasons of scarcity, here in Revelation 22, we are reminded that we have Christ as our source. That no matter how much we may have or do not have in any given moment, our only source of real life is not in the tangible things we may own, but it comes from Christ himself, who is the source of fruit year in and year out, day in and day out. We rise every day as the people of God and have this source of life, the tree that is always producing fruit. Never goes bad, never goes out of season. It's always there for us. Our life together is sustained by Christ. Our life together is the source of, of healing to the nations. Here in Revelation 22, the church is called to be a people who go into a broken world and bring healing. And especially if you think about how strange that is in the context of where Revelation began, the story to these seven churches, a lot of these churches kind of feel like they're just getting by. They're doing their best just to show up, just to survive. And here they are called, not just to weather the storm, though that's a big piece of, their, of what they're called to do. They're called to persevere, but in persevering, they are proclaiming a gospel that brings healing to the nations. Um, you know, I think as I've reflected on this year, you know, kind of navigating kind of the fallout of a kind of a politically elevated season, I think a lot of times I notice for me, like a lot of my frustration is born out of the fact that I just, at times, will expect too much. I expect too much of government or expect too much of politics and politicians and expect too much of lawmakers. And when I have those higher expectations, I'm just always disappointed, <laughs> always. But if I'm at that place where I'm personally you know, struggling with my own sense of disappointment over the state of the world and the state of government and all those kinds of things, it what I, what I realize is that my struggle is that I, will f I am focusing too much on what I expect from the world. 
Um, and biblically, if I'm focusing on what should I expect from the world, the answer is not much. Um, but if I'm at a place where I'm maybe cynical or pessimistic or disappointed, uh, the fact is that it puts me in a place that's actually fairly common for where the, the, the New Testament is at, and actually most of the Scripture. Because what, the, what Scripture calls us to do is to focus instead on what we, not what we expect from the world, but on what we bring to the world as the bearers of, the good, of good news, as the carriers of the gospel. We bring the blessing of Christ and His story of grace and peace and justice, and in that there is a story of healing. And we can be, I was reading, uh, among many things I was reading this week, I was reading the story of this you know, woman who's a Nigerian woman spending her life doing ministry, and they talk about her story, and they said, if you ever get her talking about government, you just get this earful of how horribly corrupt her government is and how terrible it is and all. There's a lot of pessimism in her story. But then you ask her about Jesus, and it's this different kind of conversation because she's full of hope about what God is doing in her ministry and in the life of people around her. She sees the gospel advancing. Um, it's a different kind of mindset. But if we, if we realize that that's who we are, we have this, this glorious opportunity as the people of God to bring, to come as agents of healing. Um, and if we're going as agents of healing, we probably shouldn't be surprised that we're finding some sick nations out there. Because that's what the nations need. These nations are sick and need to be healed. And that healing can only come through the gospel. Our life together is the source of healing to the nations. And our life together is illuminated by Christ. He ends with this picture of, of a light that, that shines in the darkness. This is what John says at the beginning of the gospel of John. So really there's an interesting kind of uh, structure that John begins his gospel thinking about Jesus as the light of the world, ends his revelation with Jesus as the light of the world. He is our light and he shines in the darkness. And we are reigning with him as that light shines. It's a picture of the church that reigns with the light of Christ, that we are compared here to the, the rulers of the world um, they may, the gatekeepers, the powerful may hold a lot of access, but they do not have the light. We have something that no one else has, no matter how much money or power or influence they might have in the world. We, as the church, are the only ones who are bringers of salvation to the world. And then we'll talk about, Jesus will talk about them, the, it's the apostles who are the, holding the keys to the kingdom and that's what's been entrusted to us. We are entrusted with the keys to the kingdom. And what that, I think the keys image means in Scripture is that we are the ones that hold the truth of the gospel and proclaim that salvation can be found in no one else except Christ alone. And when we are proclaiming that, we are holders of those keys, that we are the ones that offer the gospel and the means by which people can unlock salvation through Christ and Christ alone. It's, he is our light, He's guiding our path, and we are to shine His light on the world. We are to go into a world filled with darkness and corruption and shine the light. Say, this is the truth. This is the light of the gospel. Here is the joy of the gospel, and it can shine something and bring healing to you and to the world that you live in. 
So three keys to think about. One is the picture of the garden city, is that the garden city, garden city's descent happened and happens. And I think that's a big piece. We'll talk about this more next week as we wrap up Revelation. But the picture of the descent of the kingdom of God at these last few chapters in Revelation is both a one-time event and a continuous event. That in a sense, the, the kingdom of God has come when Jesus is incarnate. But it's also a sense that the kingdom of God when Jesus is crucified and resurrected. That the kingdom of God is here in that sense. The kingdom of God descends when the church goes out into the world and proclaims the gospel. The kingdom of God will come when Jesus returns for that final time. But the reality of what is accomplished in the cross is something that the church hasn't fully experienced yet. Um, because the church really hasn't entirely come to earth yet. We're still in process. This vision of Revelation 22, these five verses, as awestruck as it is, we will encounter times where it will not feel that way because it's not done yet. We're still in process. We're still learning how to live into that moment. But if we see that garden city something as a descent that needs to happen, we need that city to come to earth, then we can rise every day with the expectation of helping see that come to fruition. We want to embody that in how we live our lives. Because the second key, the garden city, is our mission. What these five verses lay out for us here at the end is a picture of who we are and who we are to be as the people of God. We are, first and foremost, people who worship God. And as worshipers of God, we then go into the world reflecting Christ's light to the world. Our worship is always something we do as the gathered people of God, but our worship doesn't end at the last amen Our worship, in a sense, we go out into the world carrying the truth of the gathered people of God, the gathered worshipers of God, into a broken and fallen world. The Garden City is our mission. It's who we are called to be. And finally, the Garden City is our measure of faithfulness. Uh, This picture of these five verses is a picture of how we are to live. We are to be drawing our source from Christ day in and day out, every action, everything we do, uh, whether we are together, whether we are off on our own, whether we're gathered with God's people, whether we're out doing the jobs and living the relationships and being his people out there in the world, we are drawing our source from Christ that we might pour that out to others. The hard truth is, as we begin to wrap up the last message of Scripture, it's that Scripture expects very little um, from the world for the church, but expects much of the church to the world. So you may find yourself, you may be naturally optimistic, you may be naturally pessimistic, I call those realistic, but you know, that's me. Um, you, whether you are, you may be an optimistic type, pessimistic type, but whether, whichever, as believers, we are called to be filled with hope in Christ because the story that we're living doesn't depend on our strength, our ability. It doesn't depend on our ability to accomplish anything. That the sum total of the story of, of, a, of a believer, the sum total of the story of, of a local church is not the sum total of our 
particular individual human capacities. It is the sum total of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, the hope that we have in Christ, and our ability through Him to reflect that hope to the world. And that's where we can draw our hope, and that's where we can reflect it to others. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we, as we hear these last words in Revelation, that you will help us to embody the hope that we have uh, through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to see the light and see how the light of Christ illumines our path and help us to reflect that hope and reflect that light in a broken and fallen world. In Jesus' name, amen. If we can help you in any way, please come while we stand and sing.